0: Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Welcome again to Bible Center. I'm Matt Friend, the senior pastor. It is so great to have you here. Thank you for singing your faces off. Uh, I love, wish wish you could hear what we hear up here at the front. When you're singing, it's just a joy uh, to worship the Lord with you. Also want to welcome those who are joining us online, around the city, around the country or otherwise. It's great to have you uh, tuned in with us. We'd love to have you here next time you're in the Charleston area. Please take your Bible or your Bible app and turn with me to the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, uh, chapter 5 and verse 2. We're going to jump in there in just a minute. Today, I want to begin by telling you about when I realized and my wife realized that the honeymoon was officially over. So, we were married almost 19 years ago. We were married at Cross Lanes Bible Church right here in the Charleston area. We went to Pigeon Forge for our honeymoon, had a great time, spent almost a week there. And we stayed, Pigeon Forge didn't look anything like that 19 years ago, but it's grown up a lot. We had a lot of fun. We stayed in this cabin. It's exactly the cabin we stayed in. We took our girls back there a few years ago, which was super weird for them, uh, super cool for us. Um, But then on our way home after the week, we got on I-81, coming out of Tennessee, heading back towards Virginia, and then eventually West Virginia. And something happened that I just didn't expect. My wife, my new wife, started to really annoy me okay now she's gonna have the last word here in just a minute but we were holding hands and she started playing with my fingers which is cool you know they can play with your fingers that's kind of kind of hot. But then she starts like picking at my nails, kind of like what she does on her own nails. She started like picking at at my nails. And I think just subconsciously, she didn't realize that these were my nails and not her nails. And it was kind of had this feeling like no one's ever done that before. You know, like it's almost like your fingernails on a chalkboard kind of feeling. And so I start rehearsing in my mind how I'm going to lovingly tell her to stop it, to cut it out. So I'm thinking, well, you know, I could like just not say anything. I could just let her do this. And I'm on my way from my honey- home from my honeymoon and I realize, you know, we could be married 50, 60, 70 years and I can't handle 50, 60, 70 years of this, picking under my nails. So I softly, quietly, compassionately told her to stop it and cut it out. That's annoying. Needless to say, the ride home for my honeymoon was nothing like the honeymoon itself. We continued to talk about all the things that annoyed one another. That's the first time I found out how big of a snorer I really am, right? That's the first time I found out how much it bothers her if I come to bed without brushing my teeth. That's the grossest thing in the world. So we we learned quickly this lesson. This is the lesson I want to share with you today, that conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. In other words, anytime two people are together, whether it's marriage, whether it's in school, whether it's at work, whether it's at church, whether it's neighbors, there's going to be some level of conflict. It's the sign of a healthy relationship. But God's word teaches us that our default mode need not be World War III, or it need not be the Cold War, We don't need to live that way because God's called us by the gospel to be children of light. You say, Pastor Matt, why do you want us to believe that so intently? Why are you convinced that this is uh, uh, worth spending 30 minutes on? Well, because I believe God wants you to flourish in every area of your life. God wants me to flourish. He wants us to flourish at home. As his children, he wants us to flourish at school. He wants us to flourish at work. He wants us in our church relationships and our civil relationships. He wants us to flourish. We have the opportunity to be salt and light in a dark world that knows absolutely nothing about how to do relationships. And so I'm convinced if we can leave today believing that message and learning how to have conflict in a healthy way, I think we'll all be better off and we'll reach our city for Christ much faster So what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is I want to give you six steps to pursuing peace. Actually, six steps to really dissolving conflict. Now, we know the real world is never as easy as six easy steps. But what I want you to do in the next few minutes is try to find yourself on these six steps and say, Lord, which step would you have me take next in the conflict I'm currently experiencing? So let's go ahead and dive in together. Number one, if you're taking notes, realize all conflict arises from unmet expectations. Realize all conflict arises from unmet expectations. Verse 2 of chapter 5. This is the young bride. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew and my hair with the dampness of night. This was the couple's first argument. This, they've had their honeymoon, they had their wedding, their honeymoon, and now they are fighting or they're having some conflict. So Solomon says, I've come in from work late. Most scholars believe that Solomon spent some time as a shepherd. Uh, The scriptures never outright tell us that. But in the Song of Solomon, she calls him a shepherd several occasions. And tradition says that King David wanted his son to earn his way up through the ranks. And so you see that a lot in business. If someone owns a business or they lead in a business, they might have their son or their daughter start where they started. And so David... We had his son Solomon being a shepherd, and he gets home late from work, and he has expectations on his mind, right? His expectations might have sounded something like this. I've been working hard all night. My dad is making me be a shepherd before he makes me a king. I'm tired. I'm hungry. I could use a little bit of romantic appreciation. So those are his expectations, So he's coming in and and he's all excited, okay? She has different expectations. Her expectations might have sounded something like this. I'm tired. I'm learning to be a princess. Eventually, I'm gonna learn to be a queen. It's exhausting. I can't wait for Solomon to come home and snuggle while we watch our favorite Nicholas Sparks movie and drift off quietly to sleep (laughs) together. Those were her expectations, completely different than his. Notice what she says in verse three. I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? We're not going to go into great detail this week. If you want great detail, listen to last week's sermon. I'm glad that's behind us. But this is a Hebrew way of saying, I have a headache. All right? This is a Hebrew way of saying, not tonight. Verse four. My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening, my heart began to pound for him. I rose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Poetically, they're talking about their relationship. Verse six: "I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, and he did not answer. This is important for us to see. The first step to resolving any conflict is realizing that there are unmet expectations. I can't think of a conflict that doesn't arise some other way. So just about every conflict we have at home, at work, at school, at church, are because we think somebody promised us something or they should give us something, they owe us something, and when they don't, or it's something that we wish they would, then conflict ensues. I read this week, and this is revolutionary for me, we've been married 19 years, and as I'm reading these books and Sarah and I are talking, one of the books suggested actually sitting down with your partner, sitting down with a friend, sitting down with a coworker, whatever it is, and actually writing out what expectations you've brought into the relationship and have that person do the same thing. It might be kind of weird with a coworker, but you say, hey, what do you expect from me? Hey, this is what I'm expecting from you. And sometimes those conversations alone will begin to resolve the conflict because there was a miscommunication. It also gives us a chance to find out whether or not our expectations are realistic, right? Have you ever, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever had a boss That had unrealistic expectations of you. Nobody at Bible Center Church had better raise their hands on staff. Okay, good. Right. Uh, Sure, we've all had that. But how do people feel when we have unreasonable expectations of them? You see, we hate it when people do it to us. But how many times do we do it to others? And sometimes our expectations are normal. They're needed. Uh, People at, at home, at work, at church, we should be able to be honest about what we need from one another in order for the mission to work. And those conversations are good. They're hard, but they're good. But we be honest. God calls us to realize all conflict arises from unmet expectations. Number two, there's a second step if we get past that. Allow time and space for God to change everyone's heart. Allow time and space for God to change everyone's heart. Verse 6. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So Solomon has left the house. He's gone. At this point, she doesn't know where he is, but he's left. One of the things I found interesting this week studying this passage is that nowhere does God rebuke him for leaving. It wasn't like he's running away and I'm never coming back, but, but he takes a walk. He steps out. A modern day equivalent could be, hey, I'm going to the man cave. I'm going to go watch Sports Center. I'm going to go take the dog for a walk. Sometimes it is a good idea to go take the dog for a walk say, well, Pastor Matt, I don't have a dog. Well, I've got one you can have, right? Just let me know. No, I'm just kidding. Joking, family, joking. I love my dog. But it's good for us to step away. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived other than Jesus, he wrote this in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 33. For as churning cream produces butter, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife. When you're at home with your spouse, I'll speak to married couples for a minute, and you're getting in an argument, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is take a break. You say, well, Pastor Matt, we're supposed to work it out. In marriage counseling, at times, you'll hear somebody say, we're not going to leave this room until we've worked it out. I'm like, well, somebody's going to come out in a body bag, right? (laughs) It's okay, Now, when Sarah and I first got married, we heard that passage in Ephesians 4 that says, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And so we believe that it was a sin to ever go to sleep with unresolved conflict. And if you study that a little bit more, actually, then if it's truly to be taken literally, then it's not go to sleep, but it says, let the sun go down on your wrath. That means at 5 o'clock in the wintertime, if the sun has gone down and you haven't resolved things, you've sinned. Right? So I don't think that's exactly what God is teaching. There are times when you have to hit pause on a conversation. If it's 11 o'clock at night, and especially you got little kids, and you're screaming, and you're tired, and she's tired, sometimes the godliest thing you can do is say, look, I love you. I can't even think straight right now to have a conversation. Can we pick this back up tomorrow? So in some sense, you, you've tampered the conflict until you can discuss it with clearer heads. Because we all at times need that. What about in the work relationship? Is there a time when it's okay to walk away in a work relationship? Well, absolutely. One of my mentors here, just since I've been to Bible Center, has teaching me and has taught me that if you're in a situation where there's conflict or you're not quite sure what to say and you feel your face, I got one of those faces, it's just hard to fake. If you feel your face just starting to like get aggravated, he says, go get a cup of coffee. Just get up and go get a cup of coffee. So if I'm ever in a meeting with you and I go get a cup of coffee, you know... No, I'm just kidding. I just like coffee. But at at school, it works this way at school. You know, we don't be a student who just gets in somebody else's face and refuses to back down. Sometimes the godliest thing we can do is give each other space and walk away. Verse 7 she says, the watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. She's speaking metaphorically here. There's no way they would have beat the princess. They just wouldn't have done it. But they took away my cloak, the watchman of the walls. Poetically, she seems to be saying that everything they said to her as she's trying to find her husband just felt like a punch in the gut. Verse 8. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him, I am faint with love. God has changed her heart. This isn't how she started, but Solomon has given her time. He went to his garden. We'll find out in a minute. Verse 9, how is your beloved, these are her friends, how is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? How is your beloved better than others that you should so charge us? We're not gonna take time to look much at this principle, but I still see it under this umbrella of giving one another space and time. While Solomon gave her space, she went and talked with her friends. And the beauty of her friends is that they they didn't just immediately jump to her side. They didn't start bashing Solomon. But essentially, they asked what a great counselor asks. They said, why did you fall in love with him to begin with? What is it about Solomon young bride, that you loved initially. And man, these girls in verse 9, they are smart. These are the kind of young ladies that, that I believe Christian women ought to surround themselves with. They said, think about it. What, what is it that you, that you loved about him? And she says in verse 10, she starts to think about why she loves him. And notice the attributes that she loves are, are a lot different than the attributes that, that he loves. God's made men and women different. Verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. She likes his complexion. Verse 11. His head is purest gold. That was an expression for his, his wisdom. His decision-making turns me on. Right? I've never heard a man say that about a woman. Baby, your decision-making turns me on. But, but it was working for her. Right? His wavy hair, his hair is wavy as black As a raven. Verse 12, his eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. He had a a soft, gentle look to him. Verse 13, his cheeks are like the beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like the lilies, dripping with myrrh. More than likely, she's talking about his beard here, most believe. Verse 14, his arms are like rods of gold set with topaz. His body, like polished ivory, decorated with lapis lazuli. It was like a type of sapphire. So essentially she's saying, I like him. I like his personality. I like his leadership. But I also like the way he looks. She even refers to the way that he dresses. This is just the way God's made us. I try not to embarrass my children unduly, but my wife gave me permission. They didn't give me permission. But I remember when they were four and seven, we were out by... I think, I think it was GW, and, and this whole army of football players walks by. Many of them, you know, had their shirts off and they're sweating. And, you know, I got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old little girl. I don't think anything of it. They're in the car. And, and all of a sudden from the back of the car, I hear one of them say, and they're four and seven. Did I say that? They say, hello, from the back of the car. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm moving to a deserted island, all right? There is no hope. Verse 15. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness of itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. What we can learn from this uh, this young bride is that instead of dwelling on all that he had done wrong, she took the time to dwell on all that he was right, all that he was doing right, and how God had made him right. One of the things we can do in all of our relationships is focus more on the positive than we focus on the negative. Are there things, are there negative aspects to the people in our lives? Absolutely. For all of us, we all have room to grow. So think about it at home for a minute. If you're the type of father or mom, who you can list out all that your kids are doing wrong, but you never encourage them with what they're doing right, their growth is going to be stunted. If you're a husband and you're constantly picking at your wife about all that she's done wrong over the years and how she's failed you in this way and she's failed you in that way, instead, God invites us men to be husbands who affirm our wives and encourage our wives And yes, sometimes there's conversations they need to have with us and we need to have with them. But home is no place to constantly rip each other apart because of what somebody's constantly doing wrong. Home is a place of safety, a place of invitation. Let's think about work for a minute. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but if you work in a place where not everybody does everything you think they ought to do, There's going to be conflict. I remember in college, I worked at a machine shop for several years. And my senior year, had the opportunity to go work at a textile mill. And when I left the machine shop for the textile mill, I got a couple more dollars on the hour and better hours with my college schedule. And I remember talking to the college president and telling him, I was doing okay, telling him how good the new job was going to be. But then I began to tell him how bad the old job used to be. And, man, the old job did this and the old job did that. I'll never forget it in the hallway of our college. He he said, did that job pay your bills for those three years? Did that job work with your college schedule? And, Matt, you ought to write a letter and thank the boss for everything he's done for you during your time by working there. That's just a good way to live life. Sure, if we all wanted to get out our lists right now and talk about how bad the person sitting next to us really is, we could fill up some paper. We could. But love, hopes, all things. God invites us to be encouragers far more than we tear one another down. So number three, what else can we do? We've recognized there's unfulfilled Unfulfilled expectations, we have communicated, we've been honest with one another. Number three, reach out and try reconciling as soon as possible. Number three, reach out and try reconciling as soon as possible. Notice what she says in chapter 6 and verse 1. Her friends actually ask her this question. Where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? My beloved has gone down to his garden, she says, to the bed of spices, to browse in the gardens and gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. That's one of the most famous verses of this book. He browses among the lilies. So she knows her husband's in a garden, but she's not sure which one. And I didn't know this until this week, but evidently Solomon had multiple gardens and they were all huge. Some were the size of national forests. I haven't yet been to Jerusalem, but they say if you're flying east to west over Jerusalem, there's these large craters outside the city. You can see from an airplane. And the craters were filled with water for Solomon to water all of his gardens. This was like his man cave. She knows he's at one of his gardens because he always goes to one of his gardens. She's just not exactly sure where. And so she starts to seek him out. Now, this is where it's important to see that my outline isn't always to be followed, you know, number by number, line upon line. What I mean by that is this. I said number two, give the person space. And now I'm saying in number three, be sure to go back and try to reconcile. How do you do that? Well, in a perfect world, it would look like, okay, I'm giving you space. 20 minutes. Okay, I set my clock for 20 minutes. 20 minutes, I walk back in. Hey, hey, can we work things out? Yes, absolutely, we can work things out. But if your relationships are like mine, they never work that way. What it kind of looks like is this. We go back and forth between number one and, or number two and number three. Sometimes it's, hey, I'm going to give you some space. I'm going to give you a few days. Hey, I'm coming back. Hey, can we work things out? I don't want to talk. And then you give somebody a few more days. Hey, how, can we work things out? I don't want to talk. And then eventually, by God's grace, you, you step into that number three space and you can begin to reconcile. This is just a a tip from God's Word that I think would be helpful. It's just a practical tip. When you're trying to reconcile with someone, I'm learning, and Jesus is still teaching me this, very rarely is the conflict ever 100% the other person. Very rarely is it. I like to think it is. I always like to think it is. But very rarely is it always just the other person. Even if it is 99.9% them, and you're .1%, The godliest thing you can do is to confess, hey, I just want to apologize for this. I want to apologize the way I said this. I'm sorry. If you feel like you've got that relationship with that person, that covenant Christian relationship, you can say, hey, will you forgive me? It is not a sign of weakness to apologize. It's actually a sign of amazing strength, of amazing grace that God gives us the ability to humble ourselves and say we are sorry. It's good to ask our spouse, is now a good time to talk about something serious? If they say no, wait till later. When the kids, when you sin against the kids, the best way to show them the gospel is to say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? Just a week and a half ago, we were having a meeting here at the church and there was just a small group of us and so I knew I was supposed to be Thursday at two o'clock at this particular meeting. And so I get there and just one of those days, I don't know, I had some burdens, some things on my mind. And I go and I set into the meeting, and the person who was leading the meeting didn't show up. So I'm looking at my clock, and there's other people in the room. And we start by making small talk. I love them, my team, my brothers and sisters. The person leading the meeting didn't show up, 2 207. 5, 2 7. So I'm getting kind of aggravated. And finally, you know, I didn't throw anything. I didn't cuss. I didn't kick. But I was like, you know, you know it, the meeting started at 2 o'clock. They really should have been here. I'm gonna to go to my office, you holler at me, and whenever they show up. And I kind of like got up and kind of, you know, pranced out of there. And did I sin against anybody in that room? I don't know, but the Holy Spirit really laid it on my heart that I was a proud, arrogant punk. And I had to go pack people in that room later in the day and say, you know what, I was dumb. Who do I think I am? Like the president? My office is 100 feet away and not that big a deal, right? I can make my visit later on. And just looking somebody in the eye and saying, I'm sorry goes a long, long, long way. Reach out and try reconciling as quickly as possible. Number four, stop, communicate and listen. Stop, it's not collaborate, but it's communicate and listen for you Vanilla Ice fans. We'll read these verses in just a minute, but we're going to see in a moment that conflict never resolves itself in silence. So She talks, he listens. He talks, she listens. And it's so easier said than done, but this is an important part. Whenever they finally meet one another here in a minute in the garden, they don't just like stop and look at each other. They start talking. She shares, he shares, and the other one listens. These these aren't in the text, but these are some things I read this week in Proverbs I'd love to to share with you if you're taking notes. One way to improve communication Open with positive comments. This isn't being fake. Truly, make sure you mean what you say, but open with positive comments. Use kind words. Avoid name-calling and exaggeration. That is never okay. Try to speak with the person privately if possible. I know that whenever I've tried to call my wife out on something in front of the kids, it never goes well, and it never goes well the other way either. Um, Number four, don't be historical. That's not hysterical, that's historical. In other words, don't drudge up up the past. Never say, five years ago you did this. Uh, Make I statements. This is what bothers me. Don't be a condescending know-it-all. State your expectations very clearly. This is what I feel. This is what I need. Now this next part is the part where I know I really need help, and that's listening. Here's four ways to listen well. If you're a dude in here, at least take mental notes on this. Number one, put down your phone. Put down your phone. You may be like me. Use your phone for everything, right? My Bible's on my phone. I I take sermon notes on my phone. Nothing wrong with that, but I know that whenever someone's trying to talk to me and I pull out my phone, I'm like, yeah, hang on. What does that communicate? That whatever this is on my three-inch screen is more important than you. Give him your undivided attention. Let him finish without interrupting. And lastly, watch your body language. When Sarah and I, one of our sessions for counseling, someone told me, hey, you know, just your body language, you say you're listening, but your body language says it's not. And so I might be like, yeah, baby, I care about you, yeah. This says, no, I don't care about you. This says, I want to be everywhere else but right here in your presence. The same is true, you're at work, right? If you're talking to somebody and you're like, yeah, we need to work things out, that's not a very healthy way to express yourself in a professional environment. So we listen, we communicate. And then number five, we're gonna see Solomon and his bride. Forgive and remember to forget as soon as possible. Forgive and remember to forget as soon as possible. Solomon's bride finally finds him in one of the gardens. And the first words out of Solomon's mouth, chapter 6 and verse 4, you want to read these? Chapter 6 and verse 4. First words out of his mouth were these. It's about time. Where have you... Oh, my bad, that's not what it says. You you are beautiful as Terza, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem as majestic as troops with banners. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, and Terza is a beautiful city in the north, Uh, used to be part of Lebanon. South, you've got Jerusalem, just a beautiful city. If you've not been to Israel, let me invite you to come with us next February. I've been waiting for the right time to announce it, but in February, Pastor Sean Thornton, our senior pastor from 1997 to to 2008, uh, my mentor and many of you, he's been a friend and a help He's going to lead the trip. I'm going with him right along with you. Sarah and I are going. We may even be able to take our children with us. We're still looking at that and school dates and everything. We would love for you to come with us to Israel next year. Next Sunday night is a meeting. I would love to see you there. All right, back to verse 5. Turn your eyes from me, he says. They overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is missing. Girl, you got all your teeth. Verse (laughs) 7. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and 80 concubines and virgins beyond number. He he just continues through verse 9 saying, no woman compares to you. No woman compares to you. You say, man, she must have been like a perfect woman. She was his perfect woman. In verse 10, who is this that appears like the dawn, fair as the moon, bright as the sun? He's comparing her now to nature itself. Verses 11 through 13, I'm just gonna summarize. Instead of digging deeply in verses 11 through 13, if you want the notes for 11 through 13, just a lot of complexities with the translation. Essentially, he continues this chapter, and he says, I went down into my garden, I thought about you, I prayed about you, And God renewed my desire for you. In verse 12, he says, I actually wanted you in my chariot again. I wanted you in my chariot. It's like saying, baby, I want you to go for a ride with me. Wherever I am, I want you to be there. Now we look at that. Think for a second. We look at that. She had kind of slighted him. I think she had the right to do that. Women have the trump card. But she had slighted him We found out early in the chapter, chapter five. But instead of meeting up with her and reading her list of all that she had done wrong, he sees her as his love, as his beauty, as his most prized possession. You say, he really missed an opportunity, Matt. He missed an opportunity to read her the right. Right. He missed an opportunity to really just lay it out there and let her know where she had gone wrong. You know, the problem with that is it never worked 3,000 years ago and it doesn't work today. But instead, he chose to forgive. He chose to show her grace. He chose to show her mercy and love. And she did the same with him. And they pick up into this relationship of forgiveness. This week I had somebody remind me, there's no way we can forget. We can forgive but we can't forget. So I like to say it this way. We choose not to remember or we remember to forget. I love that statement from the founder of Salvation Army, Clara Barton, or founder of the Red Cross. She was once asked about an incident in her life where she had been hurt and she responded to her questioner, I distinctly remember forgetting that. How do we get to this place as believers? I think the only way we get here is by remembering what Jesus did for us. The Bible says our sins and iniquities he will remember no more. I love Romans chapter chapter five and verse eight, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us us. Luke 23 verse 34. Then said Jesus, "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." You think right now, is there anything your spouse has ever done to you worse than what you did to Jesus? Is there anything somebody at work has done to you that's worse than what you did to Jesus? Is there anything anybody did at school or, or in the church? And, and I don't say that to excuse somehow just carte blanche abuse or, or harm in some way. That's not what I say. God's given us a wonderful government. God's given us the opportunity. If you're being abused, get out, get safe, get help, have them get help. Make sure that you never reenter a situation where you're going to be hurt in some way. But we're just talking about conflict that's natural to all relationships. If you're looking to a relationship, to try to find a relationship where there is no conflict, you're not going to find it to heaven. So instead, God invites us to forgive, to look at them through the cross of what Jesus has done for you, what Jesus has done for them. You say, what if they're not a believer? Who knows how you could show them the gospel by treating them with mercy that they've never experienced anywhere else? But God calls us to forgive. Lastly, I love this sixth and last step. And we see it in verse 13. I'll just summarize it. Fight for a new normal. Start a new dance. Fight for a new normal. Start a new dance. Essentially, in verse 13, he says, girl, let's go home. Let's go home. We've been out in the garden You've been looking for me. I love you. You love me. Let's start another dance. Let's pick up where we left off. Let's find a new normal. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. I got a new friend I want to introduce you to before we pray. His name is Clyde Ferguson. He lives in Ocala, Florida. This is a picture of Clyde. I didn't know Clyde existed until a few weeks ago. If you've been around Bible Center for a long time, you may have heard uh, his name. Actually, this is Paul Ferguson, Clyde was his dad. Uh, Paul was here as a child when Bible Center was started. In 1943, he was seven years old. And just a few weeks ago, out of the blue, he'd been listening to our sermons, been watching our series. He, He sends me this nice note and says, let me tell you about how communion was taken in 1943. He's a retired newspaper editor, he's 83 years old now, been retired for some time. And he sent me this article that he had written about how back in 1943, when we took communion, it was out of one jar. One jar. He said they would pass it around. That was a small group, you know, 50-some people down in, on Hale Street. It was a, a Welch's grape juice or jelly jar. They put grape juice in he was seven years old. He said they would pass it around. And when it got to him, he remembers, because he had put his faith in Jesus as a, at a young age, he remembers taking it and drinking the whole thing um, <laughs> instead of passing it around, which I thought was a really cool story. But about every other day, he sends me a note now. And God has just raised him up to be a, a Barnabas in my life. Um, but I was talking with him, and he talks about how he had been married 53 years, and his wife passed away two years ago of cancer. And I said, Paul, I'm gonna be speaking on relationships this week. What can I tell Bible Center Church? What can I tell your church from you in Ocala, Florida? And Paul wrote this. Instead of me trying to summarize it, I'm just just gonna read it. He says, Dear Pastor Matt, I offer you three things. Number one, marry up. I was blessed to have married a strong woman who never saw her father. Her parents split up about four months after she was born and she never saw him, so he never contributed anything to her support. She was determined, this is in the 40s, she was determined that our marriage would be sickness and in health for every waking day of our lives and a day or two before she went home to be with heaven, she quoted those words of our marriage vows to me. Number two, he said, Matt, learn how to say I'm sorry. I was in my 30s before I learned to say those words, but they were included in the toast to my son when he married in 1992. And number three, he says, this is the biggest. Never part in person or on the phone or in a text without the words, I love you. My father, one of the founding members of the City Bible Center, he still calls us the City Bible Center because that's our official name. He says, my father was a godly man as I've ever known. He gave me permission to share this, but he could not ever say, I'm sorry. My sister Dorothy married at Bible Center Church and was stricken with breast cancer in 1983. In January of 85, she knew that her cancer would be fatal, so she went back to Charleston to say goodbye to our father. She told me that after about two weeks, he asked, Dorothy, how long are you going to stay at my house? And she said, Daddy, notice she's an older woman now. Daddy, until I hear you say, I love you. He never told us, I love you. She said, Daddy was stunned and, and said, well, you know I love you, Dorothy. And then she said, well, tell me. He writes, it took my father six more months before this great Bible teacher and then state president of the Gideons, this godly man who prayed most Sundays, it took him six months before he could muster the courage to tell his grown daughter, Dorothy Gale, I love you. He said they sobbed for what seemed like hours. Three days later, she packed up and headed back to South Carolina to go to hospice. She died a month later, but she died hearing her father's words. I love you. So he said, Matt, tell the congregation, tell them to learn to say I'm sorry and to mean it, and never go to bed or leave the house, and never end a text without saying I love you. The most beautiful words I've ever heard on earth came at 2.15 in the afternoon on January 1st, 2016 when my bride Eileen entered the presence of Jesus. She hugged me She told me I love you, and she kissed me, and she just went to sleep. Folks, conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. Life's too short to live it in a fight. Life's too short to pick everybody apart around you. But let's show the grace of Jesus, and let's show him what it looks like to fight well. Most importantly, let's show him what it looks like to love well. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.